Let's open our Bibles now to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. I've always found advertising slogans interesting, especially for their staying power and the way that they affect our lives without us really even having a clue as to how much they affect us. Companies spend tens of millions of dollars to burn a pithy phrase into our minds, and most of the time, we don't even know it's being done. De Beers came up with the slogan, Diamonds are Forever, back in 1948. Of course, it wasn't hurt by the Sean Connery or the James Bond movie by the same title a little bit, little bit later. Tony the Tigers, remember that? They're great. That was used to describe the nutritious way that many parents began their children's day with frosted flakes. That was back from 1959. Coke was the real thing. 7-Up was the Uncola, and we were told never to leave home without it. The American Express card. And, of course, there's some things money can't buy, but for everything else, there's MasterCard. Exactly right. Now, if you don't feel comfortable answering this one, you don't have to, but something tastes good like a cigarette should. Winston tastes good like a cigarette should. That may have been grammatically incorrect, but most of you remember it, even though it hasn't been used in broadcast advertising since 1972. Pithy phrases that are burned into our minds. But it's the old line that was delivered so well by John Houseman, the late John Houseman, that I think that I always liked the best. At Smith Barney, we earn money the old-fashioned way. We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. Remember that? That one really sticks for me. I like that one. It didn't really work after they tried to get George C. Scott to do it after Houseman passed away, so they just dropped it. But we make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. But you know, with a slight twist, there are some folks that would apply that phrase to salvation in the Old Testament. They think that in New Testament times, salvation was by grace, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Pretty much agreement on that. Now they... Maybe a little bit of disagreement. But in New Testament times, salvation is by grace, through faith. But in the Old Testament times, they had to earn it. It was by keeping the law. Salvation, they claim, in the Old Testament was by keeping the Mosaic law either perfectly or if you talk to, if you, if you read what it seems to be the Pharisaic view, at least almost perfectly, you could keep the Mosaic law and earn God's favor. But that's light years from reality. It's light years from the truth. It's true. It is very true that the New Testament excels the Old Testament in both its description of saving faith and in outlining the terms of salvation. But it does not change the ground rules. Salvation is by grace through faith, regardless of what time in history you happen to find yourselves, whether it's Old Testament or New, salvation has always been and will always be by grace through faith. There won't be any Smith Barney people in heaven saying, we earned our way here. You got there by grace through faith, but we earned our way here. No, not then, not now, and not in the future. Paul found himself confronting this idea of a works-based salvation validated by, validated by the Old Testament. At least some people were saying that the Old Testament said that there was work works-based salvation, when he writes to the Galatians. Now, he's really worked up when he writes to them. You'll remember the first part. He says, I'm just amazed at you. I'm amazed at how quickly you're abandoning the gospel that I taught you. But then he breaks in and he says, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Do you think he was trying to make a point there? He had a Hebrew mind, and Hebrew minds continue to repeat things until we get them. And so he repeated it every which way he could. But salvation is not by the works of the law. It's by faith in Christ. And later, at the end of chapter 2, he concludes, If righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died for nothing. I mean, he just gets right to the point there, doesn't he? If righteousness could be, could be attained any other way, then why in the world would God the Father put his beloved Son through what he had to put him through on the cross to purchase our salvation? He would just say, we'll do it the other way. But it's not that way. It never has been. 
but never will be. Paul is trying to make a point, and I think he makes it. Also sounds to me like he's a bit worked up over it. I mean, he was emotional about that. When well-meaning people, but sometimes grossly misinformed people, even pastors can be this way, when they teach a works-based salvation, either then in the Old Testament times or now in the church age, they are committing a huge error. And it's an error that matters. I hope you know what I mean by that. That's an error that matters. Because in theology, some mistakes are bigger than others. There are some views that I hold that if I was proven wrong, beyond any doubt at all, I would be disappointed. And I would come to you and I would apologize for having taught that wrong in the past, and I would humbly try to correct the mistake. There are some things that, that would terribly disappoint me if I had them wrong, but I would try to correct them. And that's happened from time to time. Fortunately, not a whole lot, but it has happened. When we'll come back saying, you know, the last time I taught that passage, this was my understanding. Now my understanding is this. Uh, forgive me for misleading you before. But it's one thing to make a mistake on how to handle an aorist participle in a particular passage. Or perhaps uh, to, to argue over the mode of baptism. Should we sprinkle or should we immerse? It's one thing to make a mistake with regard to those things. But when it comes to the terms of salvation, well, it doesn't get any bigger than that. That's where we cannot make a mistake. That's where we must stand firm. And that's where there cannot be any flexibility. I think sometimes there, there's, some, there's some segments of the Christian community that are, frankly, far too flexible in far too many things, especially when it comes to theological things. And then there are other aspects in the Christian community that that probably could use a little bit of flexibility. We need to be inflexible when it comes to the essentials of the Christian faith. But when it comes to something that's not absolutely essential within the Christian faith, then we need to be careful. There are certain things where, in theology where inflex inflexibility is a must. The deity of Christ, the virgin birth, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the doctrine of the Trinity... And things like that, that if they were denied, it would strike at the very core of what it means to be a Christian. But you see, it doesn't strike at the very core of what it means to be a Christian if one person sprinkles someone in baptism and another person immerses. You know, that, that, that one's gotten so bad that, that people argue over whether you immerse one time or whether you immerse three times. And people split the sheets theologically because I can't, I can't go to lunch with that fellow. Do you know how he baptizes people? He dunks them three times. Blasphemy! No, it's not blasphemy. It's one of those areas of flexibility. The Bible never tells us exactly how to do it. If it did, there wouldn't be this discussion that is so wide-ranging in Christianity. You know that Martin Luther got up at the Marburg debates and was going to punch Ulrich Zwingli in the face because of a disagreement they had over how to, how to apply the communion elements to the congregation? Now, that's, that's a little bit inflexible, I think. <laughs> you know, that's not something you want to punch somebody in the face for. Martin was a neat guy, but he did have his flaws sometimes. So some mistakes are bigger than others, and we need, to, we need to figure out in this life, what are the things that we must be flexible about, and what are the things that we must be inflexible about? You know, there is this little thing called love in the Christian life. And we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And I dare say Brother Martin wasn't speaking the truth in love when he got up to punch Swindley out. Now, he never made it, for those of you that don't know the story. The, the people that were sitting in between them at that long table both got up and they were saying, Martin, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? I remember hearing a, a Lutheran historian talk about that one time. He gave the funniest lecture I've ever had at a very serious uh, theological meeting. And even they laugh about it. But it's one of those things that we just have to, to chuckle and move on. But, but some things... Some things are, there must be inflexibility. When, when somebody denies the deity of Christ, they're denying one of the essentials of the faith. They're denying one of the essential aspects of the person that we are placing our trust in. That's something we have to stand firm on. But other aspects of theology are, are, are open to honest and open discussion. For, for example, two men of the 1800s, Charles, Charles uh, Hodge and William Shedd. Both were Presbyterians. Both were very strong Calvinists. Both held almost all the same views. 
On, on most of the things, they held the same view. They were, they were probably the to, two most respected systematic theologians of the 1800s, Hodge and Schiff. But they did hold to some things that were differing with regard to their views. For example, when it came to the transmission of Adam's original sin, Charles Hodge held to what we call the federal view, that Adam represented us when he sinned. William Shedd held what we call the seminal view, that we were actually in Adam when we sinned. We actually sinned with him. And there was great discussion in the 1800s over this, and there's still discussion today in theology classes, and it's a good thing to have that discussion. We even have it in our churches sometimes because we need to think through that issue. But it's nothing to split the sheets over. In, in another way, Hodge was a creationist when it came to when life began. Charles Hodge was a creationist. It's a little difficult to tell, but it looks like he was a creationist that believed that life began at birth. That life, but what he meant was life that had a soul, that had, that had an eternal destiny, that had to go to heaven or hell. He was a creationist. He believed that God imputed life each time. That's what a creationist is. Instead of just once, God imputes life each time to each soul, and, uh, and then that soul has uh, a responsibility eventually either to trust Christ or not trust Christ. William Shedd, on the other hand, was a traditionist. A traditionist believes that God gave life once to Adam and Eve, and that while Hodge believed that the parents propagated only the body, and God made the soul on each, in each occasion, the immaterial part of man, Shedd believed that that God gave life once to Adam and Eve, and then when parents procreate, they end up creating both body and soul. And those are, that's a good discussion to have in theology class. It's a good thing for us to consider and to, to work our way through because there are ramifications to both those views. But I've got to tell you, it's nothing to split the sheets over. It's nothing to split a church over. And I've got news for you. There are people in our church that hold to the federal headship view, and there are people in our church that hold to the seminal view. Oh, Adam, the transmission of Adam's original sin. There are people on my staff that, that hold a different view from me about that. But that doesn't cause us not to be able to minister together. It's not a doctrinal statement issue. Do you see the point that I'm trying to make? Those, some, some areas are up for theological discussion, and those discussions are good to have because it makes us go through the issues in our minds. But at the end of the day, these are not issues that we should get up from the other side of the table and want to punch somebody in the face over. That's not speaking the truth in love. And so we need to be careful with this. Here's my point about Hodge and Shedd. Both of them were good men. Both were extremely well-respected theologians, but they came to different conclusions with regard to certain theological issues. Maturing, both Hodge and Shedd were mature Christians. I'm certain of it. And maturing Christians, maturing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will realize and recognize that certain areas of theology are open for discussion. Is that fair enough? I hope that it is. Because, because I value rigidity when things are essential. But when we carry that rigidity over into the non-essential aspects of life, we, we do not witness for Christ. Our testimony for Christ is not what it should be. And you know what? Non-Christians use that against us. You know, they can't even agree on this and this and this. They argue over baptism. They, they can't agree on the Lord's table. But you know what? There's a lot of things we do agree on. And, when it, and that's why I love C.S. Lewis's uh, work, Mere Christianity, so much. It began as some radio addresses. He put it together in writing. That's why it's still a classic work even today, because he tried to distill through all the denominational arguments you really see that when you go on the mission field and you minister in other countries. There, there are some things that you just have to set aside and, and stick with your topic because it's, no, it's not worth losing your audience because they like to wave their hands. You know? I, don't, I don't wave my hands, partly because I've got this thoracic outlet syndrome thing that if I kept my hands up here too long, then my hands would go to sleep, so I could never be a Pentecost. <laughs> but it's physical. But you know what? If they wanted to wave their hands... In Manila, let them wave their hands. Or Baguio City, wherever that was. That's fine. And they listen to the message and they learn something from it. So certain areas we need to be inflexible. It would be a mark of immaturity, my friends, to leave a church just because you hold a traditionism and you find out that I'm a creationist. That would be a mark of immaturity, not maturity. You can do it. But, let me, but you're approaching a fool. It's foolish behavior if you do it. 
provided that's your only area of disagreement. Now, if you've got a list of 20 things, then more power to you. But if that's the only one, try to be flexible. But having said all that, and I felt like I needed to preface my remarks now with those remarks. Having said all that, the issue of salvation in its terms is not a small issue. And it is not one where flexibility should reign because, you see, if we get that wrong, then we're getting wrong something that strikes at the very core of what Christianity is. The idea of works versus grace or grace versus works, that's, the, that's a core issue in Christianity. So when someone comes and says, when, it, when an entire group or segment of Christianity says that salvation is by grace through faith plus works, not as an option, but as an essential then I've got to say, can't go along with that one. That's an area where we have to have a certain amount of inflexibility. Because if you go along with it, you're denying the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and you're essentially saying what Paul was arguing against, that Christ died for nothing. Now you're on shaky ground. Do you see, do you see where, I'm, where I'm going this morning? We need to be flexible in the things that, re, that deserve flexibility, but not when it comes to the terms of salvation. That is, that's the essential aspect of Christianity, the terms of salvation. Quite frankly, salvation by grace through faith plus works is not Christianity. I'm going to say it again so that I'm not misquoted. You, you can read between the lines, or you don't have to. I'm saying it right straight out. Salvation by grace through faith plus works is not Christianity. And I don't mean any offense to anyone's background, but if, but if a church teaches that, the official teachings of that church are wrong. Now, people can still be saved in that church. I hope you understand that, because sometimes people will be saved in spite of a bad message. Sometimes you walk out of here and you say, I feel, I feel blessed for having been there in spite of the fact that I may have bombed that day. The Holy Spirit can take what little grains of truth may come through in a message and can make them effective. But I'm saying that we need, we need to be inflexible with regard to this. Salvation from the eternal penalty of sin has always been and will always be by grace through faith. Always. Always. Now the first six verses of chapter 15 of Genesis read like this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, O Lord God, what will thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since thou, hast, since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And then verse 6. Verse 6 may be, might possibly be, the single most important verse in the Old Testament. It's, it's arguable, but this might be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Chapter 15 as a whole is an exposition of a confirmation of the promises that are given to Abram, with emphasis on the fact that this is indeed an unconditional covenant. It would really have been ideal to cover chapter 15 in one lesson, but to do justice to this chapter would take far more time than we have here today. So what we'll do is consider this great chapter in two parts. We consider verses 1 through 6, and the next time we'll come in and, and take care of the unconditional part of the covenant in verses uh, 7 through 21. But what I'd like to challenge you to do this week, uh, if you can work this into your devotional reading, I would like to challenge you to read through chapter 15 more than once in its entirety. Now, it's only going to take you a couple of minutes, maybe a minute and a half, two minutes to do it. But I'd like to challenge you to do it in its entirety. Not just in a, in, a broken, in, a, in a broken sequence like I'm going to do in these two lessons. That way you'll get the idea of what's going with regard to the flow of the entirety of, the, of this chapter. So it would help you to do that. Now in verse 1, 
we don't know how much time has passed between the events that were related in chapter 14 and the vision that begins chapter 15. We just don't know. The, the text doesn't give us that great of a clue. But apparently, in the interim, between the time Abram has this incredible victory in chapter 14, you remember that victory? Lot's taken. Abram goes and chases him down with 318 of his men and some of his allies. He gets him back. We studied the first part of that fairly quickly last week, but then we spent time on the, the, the meeting with the two kings, first Melchizedek, and we saw that in community, because of the community aspect, because of Melchizedek's encouragement, Abram was, was able to pass the test of the king of Salem. And Abram has had, just had this incredible, incredible victory. And we've said before, and it bears repeating now, that we're often most vulnerable to spiritual defeat right after a great spiritual victory. So Abram will be vulnerable between the end of chapter 14 and whatever we see in chapter 15. And we see just a little hint. It's, it's not a shout, but it's a little whisper that perhaps Abram was a little vulnerable. And perhaps he had slid just a little bit. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Don't fear, Abram. Now, if, if the word of the Lord has to come to Abram in a vision and say, don't be afraid, then we, we might be safe in assuming that just possibly Abram was a little afraid. And you, you almost couldn't blame him if, if he was. He had been given these great promises. Years before, he'd been told, just leave Ur of the Chaldees, leave everything behind. Come to a land that you've never been, but I'm going to show it to you. I'm going I'm to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you all this land. You're going to have, your descendants will be so numerous you can't even count them. And now years have passed. Abram's still living in a tent. So he really hasn't seen the fulfillment of the land covenant at all yet. Uh, his name is beginning to be great. We saw that last week. Just beginning to, but he's certainly not a world-renowned figure by this time. He's a local tribal leader. So at least on a local basis, his name is becoming great. But he's getting a little older by the day. And not just Abram, but also his wife. So if I was in Abram's shoes, and maybe you'd be the same way, maybe your faith would be greater, but if I was in Abram's shoes, I might start wondering, did I leave Ur for nothing? Because all this stuff I've been promised doesn't seem to be coming to pass. At least, at least we get a hint of that. It's not a full-blown backsliding. It's not that at all, but we at least get a hint by what the Lord has to say to Abram. So some degree of fear has crept in that God is not going to fulfill his promises. Or perhaps, and this is another option, perhaps Abram's mind has started working like the rest of our minds tend to work sometimes. And we start thinking that I know there's a right thing to be done, and I know God has the ability to help me to do it, but you know what? Maybe I need to help God out just a little bit. Maybe I'm unclear as to how this was supposed to be accomplished, maybe I need to apply that very famous verse, one of the most well-known, or actually one of the most quoted verses of the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Remember that one? Actually, I'm not joking, that's one of the second or third most quoted verses that people think is in the Bible. That's not in the Bible at all, that's Benjamin Franklin, of course. 1757 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac. Actually, Franklin was probably quoting a man named Sidney, from an article that was written 50 years before that, that's not biblical at all. It shows you where our level of biblical literacy is in today's culture. But no, there's no verse in there that says God helps those who help themselves. Actually, it's the opposite of that. But Abram seems to have this idea, and this is not the only time he's going to have it. We're going to see in the very next chapter, after he receives this incredible confirmation of the unconditional nature of the covenant, He's going to do the same thing in the next chapter. So we all have areas of weakness. I do. You do. And when we sin, we tend to sin in those areas of weakness. That's why we need to be patient with each other, because my area of weakness may not be yours, so you need to be patient with me. Your area of weakness may not be mine, so I need to be patient with you as well. But it does seem like Abram had this weakness, this area of weakness, that if he couldn't figure out how God was going to do it, then he would try to help God out and do it on his own, and then ask God to bless it. You know, the old thing about it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. I think that's, that would probably would have been Abram's, uh, uh, Abram's mantra. So in verses 2 through 3, we see a false solution to the dilemma, the fact that he's got this promise, but he doesn't have any kids yet. And the false solution, of course, is that he's going to bring up someone in his own household. Now, it's difficult to take verses 2 and 3 as anything but a lament. 
You see laments in the Psalms a lot, but it looks to me like verses in two, two and three are a lament. He reasons that if a great nation is to come from him, and if this nation was going to be a means of blessing to all mankind, then he's going to need at some point to have a child. So since God doesn't seem to be moving, and this, oh, this, this gets a lot of us, doesn't it? Since God doesn't seem to be moving in that direction, at least he's not going to have a child in a physical way, at least in his mind at this time, at least not by Sarai, then perhaps God means for him to accomplish this a different way. Maybe I just didn't get the point. So his little mind started working, or actually I should not be facetious, his great mind started working. You know, there's a sense here which Abram may not be doubting the promise so much as he's doubting how God is going to accomplish it. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt here. And it does seem clear that at this point, Abram is in need of some encouragement from God. And that's exactly what God is going to give him. We need that sometimes too. It would be so much easier if we prayed for something and then by the time we woke up the next morning, it was there. You know, but sometimes we pray at night that our loved one may be healed of cancer and we wake up in the morning and he's still got it. You know, sometimes we might pray that, you know, member of our family or some of our friends who are having interpersonal relationship, perhaps in their marriage, we may pray intensely that night that God would heal that marriage. And then we wake up in the morning and it hadn't changed. And then if that happens day after day, we may have a choice. Sometimes we may look at job situations. We've been praying for people on Wednesday night that have needed jobs going on over a year now or so. There may be more than that. You know, and all these people have choices to make. Am I going to panic? And am I going to start doing things my way? Am I going to jettison prayer and confidence and faith in the Lord and say, well, listen, if he's not going to give me what I want, I'm going to go take it. No. You don't have to, we don't have to come up with our own solutions. All of us are guilty of this from time to time. But, but Abram was at a low point here, I think, and I think he needed encouragement. And that's exactly what God is going to give him. I want you to know, though, that under, and this is important not only for this chapter, for, but for the next. It's very important. Under the prevailing custom of the time, if a man died, died childless, then the ranking servant in his household would be the heir. Under the prevailing custom of the time, if a man died childless, then the ranking servant in his household would be the heir, not the wife. That culture just didn't work that way. Now, the Bible doesn't prescribe this. I know one very famous Bible teacher. I won't say his name, but, but if I did, you would recognize it immediately. I think he's taken this way too far, way too far, and he's arranged his will in such a way as to skip the wife and go on to the oldest child, skip the other children, and, and just everything's going to go there. I, I just don't think you can do that from, from the prevailing customs of the Bible. I think that's a mistake in, inter, in uh, not only interpretation but in application. But that was the prevailing custom of the time. So Abram is going to punt. And he is starting to say, well, maybe God is going to fulfill this promise by the prevailing custom of the time. And again, that's not the only time it's going to happen. He's going to do it in chapter 16, too, in a, in a much worse way, by the way, in a way that's going to cause all kind of trouble. And frankly, Abram, what you did in chapter 16 is causing us trouble even to, to today. There are a lot of tr- there's a lot of trouble in the Middle East because of the decision that was made in chapter 16. So some decisions that we make have short-term ramifications. Some have really long-term ramifications. And the chapter 16 decision is a very long-term decision. Now, in verses 4 through 5, God answers him. God is gracious in answering him. He's not going to say, well, whatever you want to do, you know, if that's what you'd like to do it, Abram, let's go ahead and do it that way. He says, no. The word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, that's an important phrase. When God speaks, people listen. You know, back to our advertisements. Remember when, when who spoke? People listen. E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well, if that's true with E.F. Hutton, it sure should be true with God. And Abram got the point. So the word of the Lord comes to him. And says, this man will not be your heir. So no, Abram, that's not the way I'm going to do it. I'm not going to follow social custom. Now when he, when he goes through, watch whose name is eliminated. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. You notice God doesn't even mention Eliezer's name. 
I'm not going to do it that way, God says. Both the omission of his name and the basic Hebrew grammatical construction of this verse has led many Hebrew scholars to conclude that God's answer to Abram is a very sharp rebuke. So God's not messing around here. No, that's not how I'm doing it. You're on the wrong track. But then we get to verse 5, and then there's going to be gracious encouragement. Verse 5, and he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. I hope all of you get to do it at some point in your life. But I hope you get to be at a place and at a time where you're out in the, the countryside somewhere on a cool, crisp night, and you can look up into the heavens and you could see what Abram saw. Because we don't see this. If, if God was to take me out in my backyard on any given night, maybe midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and say, listen, you're gonna, all the grandkids you're going to have are going to be like all these stars you can see in the sky. And I figure there may be three or four coming down the way. Because I live right next to Ellington Field, it's constantly, the, the, even when it, the sky's constantly got light over it, even at night, and there's just not many stars up there. But I've been in the middle of New Mexico on a crisp, cool, clear July evening, riding in the back of a pickup truck in a chase lounge. Now, it's obviously a long time ago. Uh, I wouldn't do that today. I'd probably have to have a seatbelt and a helmet if I was going to do it, and a biker's jacket. But not then. I had my shorts on, a T-shirt, riding in the back of a pickup truck in a chase lounge, then all the way back and just looked up at those stars, and I, and I saw what Abram saw. There's so many up there, you can't count them. And I understand for those of you that are into something like this, if you get a big telescope and you can take just one little square and magnify it, and then there's so many stars in that square you can't count them. It's absolutely incredible. The point is, God is saying, no, Abram, you don't have to do it through Eliezer. And he's sharp. Apparently he's sharp in that rebuke. But then he turns right around and encourages him. Now that's a model for us as well, isn't it? I mean, it's a model for how we deal with our children, perhaps our employees, whoever it may be. There may be a repute, but, but if you love the person... Typically, we don't just end it with a rebuke. There's some sort of encouragement after that, and that's what God does here. It's, it's a great pattern. So he looks to the heavens, count the stars if you're able to count them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. So rebuke followed by gracious encouragement. And then verse 6, the verse that I said a minute ago might be the most important verse in the Old Testament, might be the most important, one, certainly one of the most important verses in Genesis and it's quoted in the, Old, in the New Testament, rather, by Paul twice, in Galatians 3, Romans chapter 4. It's quoted in James, in James chapter 2. Very significant verse. Verse 6 again, Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This verse, this concept, is the centerpiece of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4, our scripture reading for today. It's the centerpiece of Paul's argument that salvation or justification, if you prefer, to stay strict with the context, is by grace through faith apart from works of the law. Who does he pull out when he wants to give an example, when he wants to make his case that salvation is not now, nor has it ever been by means of works? He pulls out a man who is respected by almost every culture of his day, Father Abraham. And he says, basically, how was Abraham saved? Was he saved by keeping the law? No, he couldn't have been saved by keeping the law because Abraham lived about 400 years before Moses was ever born. He couldn't have been saved by keeping the law. Was he saved by works? No, he wasn't saved by works. He was saved by grace through faith. I asked a Jewish friend one time, we were having a real nice lunch, and I asked her in the course of the discussion because it came up, I was trying to lead her to a discussion about salvation. I said, well, how was Father Abraham justified? In your eyes, how was Father Abraham justified? And she said, what do you mean? I said, well, how was he made right before God? And she said, well, he was a good man. I said, well, yeah, he's a good man, but he wasn't a perfect man. So, well, how dare you say that? I said, well, it's the truth. And she said, well, what, what did he ever do that was wrong? Well, I said, well, I can mention a couple of things. I mean, one, he tried to pass his wife off as his sister to save his own skin. He said, and, the, and the person, dear delightful, I mean, she was a really delightful lady, but she got mad at me then. She said, it was his sister. I said, I know it was his sister. It was his half-sister, but he lied about it to save his own skin. And I hope, I trust that you would think that that wasn't perfect. And so Abraham didn't get to heaven by being perfect. The scriptures tell us that Abraham got to heaven by grace through faith. Now, that's a flashpoint with a lot of people. 
a lot of our Jewish friends. That is a flashpoint. But it's one that we need in love to, to meet. We need to meet them at that flashpoint. And you know what? When you have a flashpoint, it, impi- it implies heat. And when you get real close to the flame, then, then sometimes, yeah, you're, the hairs on your arm can get singed. But is it worth it to you to have that conversation? Is it really worth it? Are you just going to go on letting them think that salvation was by works in the Old Testament, so therefore our Jewish friends today are going to earn their way to heaven? They didn't earn their way to heaven in the Old Testament. That's the point. And, and the sad thing is, in, in most of my conversations with my Jewish friends, and they are my friends, and we should, be, we should love them, and we should support them, and we should do everything we can to, to do just like Paul did, who was a Jew, by the way. Well, one time I had a person come to me, and, and uh, she was Jewish. She was on her way to Yom Kippur. And uh, so, I, you know, I talked to her about that, and it turned out I knew more about Yom Kippur than she did. And she said, I'm amazed at this. She said, you're a Christian, right? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. And she said, I thought Christians hated Jews. I said, How could, why would you say that? I said, I worship a Jew. My Savior is Jewish. And, and, and by and large, most of the writers of the New Testament were Jewish. I don't hate Jews. Christians don't hate Jews. Maybe some have, but that's their fault. That's not Christianity. That's their fault. So, so we need to be careful of that. But we should be giving the gospel to our Jewish friends. The Messiah came from the Jewish race. Don't we owe at least that to them? But we, we owe it to them enough that if our hairs get singed while we, we do it, and maybe if there's a, a harsh comment that comes back, is their eternal destiny worth it to you for one harsh comment? It ought to be. Sometimes we shy away far too quickly. We shy away because of social custom or something like that, but, but we ought not. We need to be bold in the presentation of the gospel, in love, because sometimes we can present the gospel in a way that's not loving, and we run them off because of us, not because of the gospel. But we need to tell them about Christ, and we need to let them know that salvation was never by works, even in the Old Testament. And this is the verse in their Bible, in Hebrew Bible, that we can point to to demonstrate that. Abram was justified before the Mosaic Law was given. Abram was justified before he was circumcised. So neither circumcision nor the Mosaic Law were part of Abram's justification. Neither circumcision nor keeping the Mosaic Law nor any other moral code has anything to do with either Abram's justification or yours or mine. None whatsoever. Now, one of the thorniest questions in the book of Genesis is the question as to why Moses waits so long to write this phrase. Why does he wait so long to tell us about the point of Abram's justification? And the way the New American Standard translates it, then he believed, simply adds to the confusion. Because we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, that Abram had already exercised faith way back in Ur couple of decades before this time. And that's a certainty. That's really not up for debate. We know that he had exercised faith. He showed he exercised faith by obeying the word of the Lord, not just once, but, by, but by many times. And by the time we get to chapter 15, Abram's not just a believer in Yahweh. He's a maturing believer in Yahweh. The promises had already been given to Abram by this time. And he's had several spiritual victories with a spiritual bump or two in the road thrown along for a good measure. Now, I believe that the New American Standard is an excellent translation. That's why I use it in my preaching. I, I do my best to go back to the original text, the original languages, and, and validate what I say from that. So I don't validate it from any English translation. But that being said, the New American Standard is a very fine translation. And if you want to know which version I use and you want to try to follow along, then that's the one that I would recommend that you get. But it's not a perfect translation, and this is one of those places where the New King James and the NIV probably did a little bit of a better job. Because the grammatical construction here is not what we would have expected if Moses was going to try to indicate a sequential event. In other words, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. In Hebrew, that's done by the use of what's called a vav consecutive. And that's not what happens here. So the translation then 
in the New American Standard is a bit unfortunate. Better to do what King James and New King James did and just put and, or some, some translations don't, don't have a word there at all. They leave it untranslated. Just Abram, or he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned unto him as righteousness. When this verse is quoted in the New Testament, that's how they do it. They don't, they don't put any modifier, on the, any temporal modifier on the beginning, and there's a reason that they don't do that. Walter Kaiser, who is one of the leading Old Testament scholars of our day, it's interesting, one time I was with Ron Allen, and I asked Ron Allen who he considered the five leading Old Testament scholars of this era. And he told me who he thought they were, and one of them was Walter Kaiser, which I found interesting because I've got a lot of Kaiser's work. I've taken a course through distance learning course with him on the theology of the Old Testament. Well, anyway, not too long after, I told Paul Shockley, our associate pastor, that not too long after that, Paul Shockley's in San Diego in a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society, and, and lo and behold, who's he riding the elevator down but with Walter Kaiser? So he, as Paul would do, you can imagine this, he strikes up a conversation with Walter Kaiser. And he says, listen, I'm just curious, who do you think are the five leading Old Testament scholars of our day? And Kaiser lists several, you know, the, the top four. Actually, his list was exactly the same, except for instead of Walter Kaiser, he put Ron Allen. So I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Ron Allen, who has spoken here several times. Anyway, Walter Kaiser believes that Moses holds off about telling us of Abram's justification because most of the emphasis so far in chapters 12, 13, and 14 has been on the land, the land aspect of this covenant. Not all the emphasis, but most of the emphasis. And now that the subject, according to Kaiser, now that the subject has shifted back to the seed aspect of the covenant in chapter 15, he believes that Moses takes this opportunity to remind us of Abram's previous justification. Abram had previously trusted Yahweh and had previously been accounted to him as righteousness. So if you prefer to not have to worry about all the Bob consecutives and all that, one of the ways to, to kind of consider verse 15 is almost a parenthetical statement, a reminder, Abram, believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, granted, in context, part of what the content of that faith may have been was, was the promise itself, but that goes all the way back to earth. So let's not get wrapped up in, in the sequential nature here. There is no sequential nature. I know it's hard for an English reader, but there is no sequential nature to, to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. That's why some translations, and you see how they struggle with this, some translations will translate it, Now, Abram had believed, you see, just to let you know that it's a parenthetical statement. But what about the statement itself? Abram believed or trusted. It's the, the term aman. It's where we get our phrase amen from. Abram believed or trusted Yahweh. And that faith was accounted to him as righteousness. Now this doesn't mean that Abram just became a theist. Or that he switched from worshipping this moon god Nanar to worshipping Yahweh. As if, he, as if he was changing hamburger places he liked to, to dine in. No, that's not it at all. Abram trusted Yahweh. Yahweh, we don't know exactly the form of the appearance to, to, of Yahweh to Abraham and the Chaldees. But whatever that revelation was, Abraham believed it. And he trusted God. You see, this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible that the seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. doesn't sound like John 3.16, but it is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. The seed of the woman would ultimately conquer the seed of the serpent. And we don't give enough credit to God the Holy Spirit for making that clear, that there would be someone to come. And that someone would be from the woman who would ultimately un be able to remove the negative effects or potentially remove the negative effects of what Adam had done. And Abram believed. He believed Yahweh. He trusted in God, but he also trusted that God would send the seed of the woman, just like everyone did. Now, now granted, as time went on, there was more information about the seed of the woman. By the time we get to the prophets, we know that the seed of the woman will suffer greatly. Isaiah chapter 53. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we, we learn that the seed of the woman is going to be born in Bethlehem. Back to Isaiah, we understand that the seed of the woman will be virgin-born. So there's a lot of data that, that the Old Testament prophets add to the content of what one must believe. But Abram believed the content that he had. 
He believed the content that he was given. So the first aspect that we see here is faith, faith alone. And what is the object of the faith? The Lord, Yahweh. Now the text does mean in the, in the Lord, um, just like Pistuson Epiton Kurion Yesun, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved in Acts 16, chapter 31. But it doesn't just mean that he believed Yahweh existed. He, just, he didn't become a theist. He trusted what Yahweh had told him. And he trusted Yahweh in a sense, that we could put it this way, to forgive his sins and to grant him eternal life. That's all wrapped up in this phrase, he believed in the Lord. And then what happens, though, he reckoned, God reckoned it to him or, or accounted it to him as righteousness. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 3. Justification is an interesting idea. It's an interesting concept that we have to get our minds around. Justification is not what was, there was a popular definition of justification back in the early 1900s, and it, and it was pithy, but it really didn't work. It was just as if I had never sinned. Maybe you've even heard that in modern times. Most competent people will avoid that one because that's not justification. Justification is not simply subtraction. It's not just simply subtracting sin. But it's addition. When we say that Abram was justified, when Paul talks about justification in Romans chapter 3, that's an addition. That's God taking his righteousness, and at the moment of faith, he imputes it to you. You don't deserve it. You do nothing to get it. God says, righteous. He declares you righteous. Now, that didn't, that didn't mean Abram became righteous experientially. Sometimes we get this mixed up. We expect because someone's been declared righteous that they start behaving righteously. And we would like to see that. But sometimes it's not as consistent as we would like to see. But there, and, and, and granted, the Holy Spirit will, will work on a person's life, so the, the likelihood is that they will produce some fruit at some point in time, but we just may not be able to see it, so it's, let's hold off on being the fruit inspector of people. But God declares you righteous. He calls you righteous. He said, now you are righteous. You have my righteousness, and that's what makes you acceptable before God. That's one side of the theological coin. The other side of the theological coin is forgiveness. Now, it's very, they're very similar concepts, but they're not the same. Forgiveness, is, especially when it comes to forgiveness at the point that we trust Christ, forgiveness means that I will never have to pay the eternal penalty of sin. God has wiped that out. I'll never have to pay that. And in, in, with, with regard to time, when we confess our sins as believers, we, we are cleansing ourselves from the temporal consequences of sin, from the post-salvation temporal consequences. But one of those consequences is never, to, never condemnation. But that's, that's something different. So you have two sides of a theological coin. You have justification, and that's the term that is used here. That's why Paul is going to use this verse when he gets to the great chapter on justification, Romans 3, and then on into 4. And then even in Galatians 2 and 3 as well. Justification is addition. Forgiveness is subtraction. He's, he's wiping out the debt that we owed. Justification is addition. You know, the study of salvation is such a wonderful thing. It encourages me more every time I study it to see exactly what the death of Christ on, on the cross did for me. I have been declared righteous. I'm a new creature in Christ. I'm a, I'm a new person. I may not always act that way, and neither, neither may you. But we are new. There's something different about us now. We've been forgiven. That's the other side of the theological coin. But God imputed his righteousness to Abram. He didn't become righteous experientially. We've seen that. But he was declared righteous. So justification is the other side of the theological coin to the doctrine of forgiveness. It's not the same as forgiveness. Forgiveness is subtraction. Justification is addition. That's the way I want you to remember that today. When the Bible says that we are justified, it means that we have been declared righteous. You, me, and everybody else in this room that has personally trusted Jesus Christ. We have been declared righteous. God's righteousness is then imputed to each one of us, making us acceptable before God. And that is by grace through faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. I may not be able to lead music, but I can tell you this. I can tell you this, that no one that's ever walked this planet has ever been saved by being good. Your goodness doesn't get you into heaven, and your badness is not going to keep you out, provided you will trust Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, to declare you righteous, I want you to know that you can do it the exact same way that Abram did. Simply by, in the, in your, with your own thoughts, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm, I'm not going to ask you to come up here. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. But if you happen to have come this morning and you've never personally trusted Jesus Christ, if you haven't been declared righteous, I want you to think of this. A long time ago, a Philippian jailer was in the situation you're in right now. And he asked a penetrating question, a question that has reverberated, that has echoed throughout the quarters of time. What must I do to be saved? And the Apostle Paul answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I'll tell you that today. If you want eternal life, you can quit trying to work for it because Jesus Christ has already done all the work. Your responsibility, all that's left, is for you to receive that free gift with the empty hands of faith. With the empty hands of faith. Like the old hymn says, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you don't have God's righteousness, and you are still condemned. But you can, you can settle that between now and the 30 seconds we have left, literally, in this time together this morning. Eternal life can be yours. Just tell God the Father in your own thoughts, he reads your thoughts, that you're trusting Jesus Christ. You know you need a Savior, you know you can't do it on your own, and you're trusting Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. And guess what? He will immediately declare you righteous, acceptable before him. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this great passage, this encouragement that takes the weight off of us. We, we realize that Jesus Christ did all the work. We can't add anything to it, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you declare each of us righteous. Help us to be careful with the text. Help us to be careful in our theology. Father, in the future, help us to be careful with regard to those things which we may exercise a certain amount of flexibility and those things which we can't. And when we come to areas where flexibility is not an option and we have to be inflexible, help us to be inflexible, though, and speak the truth in love, not in meanness or in anger, but in love. So it might be a testimony for you, both now and in the days to come. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.